Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. We need to be more open and communicative about the good stuff we're doing so people understand we're in business for more than profit. Those are the words of my guest today, Paul Dreschler, a man with a focus on bringing out the best in business. As the former president of the CBI and now chairman of London First, Paul has a passion for helping British business and its capital city reach maximum potential as forces for good in the world. Paul, welcome to Changemakers. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Let's start with London Calling, London First. You're on a mission to make London the best city in the world to do business. Tell us, tell us how. Michael, look, the, it is the best, the most exciting, the most vibrant, the most diverse city on planet Earth. And our goal is to be the premier capital city in the world. And actually, we are. You know, when you think about it, six international airports, 3,500 pubs, 300 nightclubs, 40 universities the language of business spoken throughout London, and 230 other languages. I mean, without question, this is, I mean, to me, it is the most excited city in the world. What's not to love? Now, listen, if we were doing the the job interview for the chair of London first, I think you would have just proven there that you can sell things. I mean, no doubt about it. But I also think that they often talk about the American dream. Let's talk about the London dream, because, I mean, you grew up in Dublin. You've come to London to make to make it your home. I mean, the, you've got a backstory here in terms of why London, why your own personal views of it, how they were formed. Tell us all about it. But, you know, I was reflecting earlier. I remember my first trip to London <clears throat> was at the age of 12 with my father to Carnaby Street. And I remember the, the lights, the brightness, the psychedelic, the rock and roll, the noise. And already then you felt there's something special about this city. But when you look at it today, London and Greater London, 13 million people, one third of those people were born in London. One third of them come from outside London, but elsewhere in the UK. And one third come from outside the UK. I mean, this is a city that capitalizes on diversity, which is why we've got great strengths in the creative arts, in culture, in museums, in universities, fintech, uh, bioscience. I mean, it's it's that diversity of people. That's what I love about. It. That's what I think makes it a very special place. I mean, I mean, I'm just thinking about my my first trip to London. That something I can remember. I mean, I grew up in Sheffield, and I can remember being on a school trip to the to the Commonwealth Institute, as then was. It was down in uh, sort of Kensington somewhere, and I remember just thinking about. Here was, I mean, even back then in the kind of like late 70s, this sense of a world city that just seemed to be in a very different sort of place in its sort of view of the world, how international and cosmopolitan it felt. But it was also, I suppose, back then, even though I didn't realise it, a, a city that was was in, encountering a lot of problems. I mean, London in the 70s was very different to London in the 60s. And a lot of people, you know, make those comparisons today to say, look, London in the 2010s had it all. It was the centre of business. It was the centre of so many different people's lives from all around the world. But but actually, London in a kind of emerging post-COVID world feels like it may have some very different and unique challenges. Do you buy that, or do you think actually we'll be back on? You know, the show's going to be back on the road before you know it. So I I think that's a great great point, Michael. It was I I remember. The 70s and 80s. In fact, I started my career in the UK in Teesside, just above North Yorkshire. So Sheffield was one of my first stopping off points. But when you look at London today, it has recovered 
from every type of disaster you could imagine. Financial, political, fires, floods, plagues, everything. It's, since the 17th century, London has bounced back so many times. So we can believe London will bounce back again, and I'm totally confident it will. I don't think the challenge is about whether or not London bounces back. It's how fast do we recover to the economic levels of 2019. And in my view, we have a choice. We can recover by 2025, 2026, or we can recover by 2022, 23. And my view is we should figure out what have we got to do to get 2019 levels of economic success back in in, in the sooner period. But do you not do you not worry that this kind of truism that London bounces back is almost now taken as an absolute given that whatever London faces is that it it, it finds its way through? I mean, is there a point in time where the kind of you know the shopping list of challenges becomes so great that its competitiveness, that its kind of ongoing position as one of the preeminent handful of global cities becomes seriously challenged? When you're top of the Premier League, when you're top of any league, the one thing you know is there's people below you who want that place. And every day there are people in New York, in Beijing, in Tokyo, in Paris, in Berlin, competing to be the best capital city in the world. So we cannot take it for granted because actually being a leading capital city is an incredibly competitive sport. And London has in the past years, uh, and, and London First was created at a time when London was on its knees by a business community who said, we can do better. What we need to do to make London a better capital city? So I think you're, you're absolutely right. We, we need to bear in mind there's lots of people out there who would love to eat our lunch. And what we need to do is to stay match fit, understand our strengths, and build on them. And what makes me sad at times is that we talk about London as though it's something bad relative to the rest of the UK. And I'm saddened. You know, why aren't we proud of this great city with 40 universities? Why aren't we proud of having the capital city for financial services? That's the best in the world. Why not? What, what's your own view of that? I mean, I'm, I'm here to ask you the questions. I mean, it's not like, what, what's your own view about that? Because it's, it's a fair point. You know, there is a a challenged relationship with the capital city quite often. Well, I mean, I think we're into an era of populocracy. What have we got to say to make everybody happy? So we say we're going to level up. Well, I'm all for leveling up. And if you want to level up a nation, the first place to start is with education. But you definitely don't level up if you let London, which generates 39 billion pounds of taxes, taxes, 39 billion. One quarter of all the UK's GVA, GDP, comes from London. So we need to nurture what one of our best pieces of the United Kingdom and actually bring everywhere else up to those successes, not pay so much attention to everything else that we forget that London is competing with New York, Paris, Beijing and Tokyo. Mm. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking hopefully you know, not many weeks before London reopens. And of course, you know, when the the dust covers come off the city, there's going to be a reveal of the true costs of of COVID. What's your feel 
right now for a city where I, I guess connection and togetherness and culture and the ability to be out and about is so integral to its sense of identity. What, what's your sense of that that kind of immediate post lockdown sort of moment in terms of how it's going to feel? Well, the number one item on my priority list at the moment is a recovery plan for London. It has been more damaged than any other part of the UK in terms of impact on young people, jobs lost. Over 700,000 people have left our capital city. Nearly 10% of our population have left in the past 12 months. So we need those and we will need many of those people. So we have serious challenges and they fall to my mind into three areas. The first is footfall. What makes this city great is people pounding the pavement to the workplace, to the theatre, to the restaurants, the hospitality, everything. That's what makes So we've got to get people back into the city. Three types of people. Those who work in offices, tourists from the rest of the UK, which I think we can get reasonably fast. But one of our great challenges will be international tourists. International tourists represent 50% of all the income of the West End. So international tourists are really important. So we're going to have some challenges on footfall. People have to be confident that they can travel safely. So we need people to believe that they can travel safely on the tube and the train. And as we build up the numbers, people have to feel safe in that sense. And that confidence is going to take time. But where I would focus is on the demand side. Bring back the sizzle to London, bring back the excitement. I want everybody who who worked in London in the past to sit at home now and say, I really miss it and I want to go back. I want to go back as soon as possible and I want to go back as often as possible. I mean, it's interesting because there's the mayoral elections, obviously, which I suppose provides the backdrop to how much sizzle the London message will have. I'm sort of thinking about how that future message is going to be communicated. I mean, you know, we, we've not mentioned Brexit, but you've described that as a Pandora's box of economic consequences for London. I mean, in terms of the reinvention, because I suppose that is partly what, what this now offers the opportunity for a city like London to start to think about how it presents itself to the world. Let's move on to this this sense of being a home for good businesses, businesses that are a force for change in the world. I mean, a lot of my guests have been talking about the fact that COVID, actually, when you look at the, the role of entrepreneurs and innovators alongside the public sector in terms of the ability to come up with vaccines and, and healthcare measures, is that people should be emboldened by the good things that business can do. Do you think London could be a place for those good businesses, those, those innovators, those future shapers? And, and I suppose, if so, how? Well, well I mean... First of all, I started, London is great because of those businesses and they are there today. And it is a great city for nurturing those. If you, if you walk out of King's Cross Station today, it's alive with, with, with entrepreneurs and tech business and so on. So we have, we have tremendous technology hubs. We're the world leading center for fintech. So we know we've got we, we can create that sort of climate. In my view, we, we very often get very focused on the entrepreneurs and the small business. Michael, I'll tell you confidentially, I never met the chief executive of a small business who said they wanted to be smaller. 
They all want to grow. They all want to get bigger. And I've never met the chief executive of a big business who didn't depend on smaller businesses. But, but I suppose without wanting to get too sort of like theoretical about it, a lot of people are saying, yes, but OK, I get I get that. But but we may well start to reinterpret what we mean by by growth. It might not just be top line revenues. It might be about social contributions. It might be there might be other measures, you know, environment, social governance that that become disproportionately important to the way businesses and their contribution to the world are are, are measured and viewed in, in the future. So so I, I I agree with you, but but I start on on I am a real believer in sustainable development. And I do believe that all of this is about finding the balance between economic growth, environmental impact, and social benefit. That's what makes the world a great place. And I'll tell you a, a, a story about, about banks, which, which haven't had the most fantastic reputation post-financial crisis. I was chair of the education charity Teach First. It was created, originated by London businesses who looked around and said, there are too many poor performing schools in London. What can we do about it? And eventually the idea of Teach First, recruiting brilliant, enthusiastic, talented mission-driven, determined people to go and to teach in the poorest schools. That charity wouldn't have existed, wouldn't have developed, and wouldn't have succeeded without tremendous support from Citibank, Credit Suisse, HSBC, and many others. So there is an awful lot of giving that happens in the city. Now, not just money. If you say, why are a lot of these employees highly motivated? Because they're going into the schools to mentor the teachers, to mentor the pupils. So I I think business has actually done a poor job selling itself in terms of all the positive things it does do for society. But but you'll forgive me in terms of you know pushing back to you is that a lot of people will say, look, these organizations that Paul is speaking about, they they control huge resources, huge levels of financial firepower, people firepower. And yes, nobody's saying that they are not doing things, but are they doing enough to deal with the the, you know, the, the sheer epic nature of the challenges that now face not only London, but the country and the world at this extreme moment in our in the human experience. Michael, I think that's I think that's a great question. And I think the way I look at the question is, is much more focused on the next generation. Are we taking the steps to ensure the next generation have a better world, a better set of opportunities and so on? So our number one agenda item, number one agenda item has to be climate change. And I think each and every one of us as individuals in our companies have to ask, are we finding the right balance between our mission for growth alongside the impact on the environment and biodiversity and alongside local communities? And to me, it is is about all of these. And I, I definitely think in the world of today, you've got to be a lot better at proving to people that you deserve to be serving the customers and the communities. You know, you don't have the right to be in business. You have to earn that and by and large to retain that license to operate. Whatever your business, all your stakeholders have to say you're right or wrong. And I think, I do think it's very different today. You have to be able to stand up and prove to people that you're finding that balance the right way. Well, and I I think climate 
point well made the kind of Greta Thunberg idea that, that our house is burning everybody gets needs to get involved with that but I suppose in in a, another sort of issue for a big city but also with your kind of former president the CBI hat on big business is the fact that there are other issues that are now seen as the responsibility of the powerful to really stand up and be counted. So so poverty is, is a major issue in a city like London. I mean, it really is, you know, that story of the, of the haves and, and the have-nots. I mean, do you buy into the fact that this is now an absolute obligation for for business to to sort of play its part in creating more equitable, fairer, more harmonious societies. And to what degree do you think that's a view that is prevalent amongst the kind of leaders that, that, that you hang out with? I think we are at a stage where we have to ask all of these questions and we will be judged by how we respond to them. And I, I guess there's two sides I look at this, which is you have to create the economic wealth in order to be able to distribute it. So we have to have successful businesses. And and therefore, I passionately believe that business is a force for good. If you say how we deal deal with world disease, how we deal with the big health issues, it's businesses in the main, most often in partnership with universities, that would be the source of solutions to the biggest challenges that the world faces. So, so I think we have to look and we say, what are we doing to create that success? And having created it, how are we distributing that wealth, those earnings? And bear in mind that businesses already give up a big chunk of their money, as do people by way of taxation. So one question you have to ask is, is that taxation being distributed in a smart, fair and balanced way? And I think there's plenty of questions we can ask there. And the second thing is, do our stakeholders look and say we're finding the right balance? And if you look at the course of COVID, I think you have seen a number of companies sort of hand money back because they realized it would be untenable not to in a world that's going to judge them. Are they behaving properly? And, and, I, and I think that point is well made, that, that part of the dividend of economic success is the, is the greater tax take. But I would also put to you that... For a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interview, the social contribution is also a major part of the business model that actually, you know, if you, you know, if you, if you had, well, Tom Blomfield from Monza, I remember interviewing talks about the fact that he wanted to basically help a billion unbanked people find financial literacy, find financial opportunity, and that Monza was a vehicle to achieving that. Now, obviously, Tom has moved on, but I think he sort of, he to some degree represents this spirit that capitalism has to be about more than just earning money and paying taxes. There's got to be a different type of contribution if it is going to find its own value for everyone in in society and make its contribution fully felt. I mean, is that something you think big business gets or or, or wants to get? Well, well, let let me look. I chaired two big businesses, the Waits Group, fourth generation family owned construction property company. And we took great pride in all the work that we did, providing unemployment for uh, pride employment for young young people, retraining young people, building career capabilities for people in prisons. I mean, our employees used to go out to, to help in schools. I couldn't get them back to the office. They were so huge engagement. And that, 
And But Waits didn't boast about that. It just got on and did it. Bibby Line Group, where I was chairman, had programs running where their employees went out and did stuff in the community. They just did it. They raised money together. They did team stuff together. It was an inherent part of the business in which there was huge pride. Sunday Times, there was a great article by Timpson, the Timpson family around the Timpson shoes. Most people he employs are former prisoners. I mean, he's sort of integrated. So I don't think this stuff is, is, you know, owned by any one part. We're all in it. And we all find the way that makes sense for our businesses to engage. So you talked earlier about that, you know, business needs to do a better job of telling that story. Is it just a presentational task? Or, 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 Or do you think that actually, look, you've given a list of three or four excellent business leaders, but I suppose at what point does a list become a trend and at what point does a trend become a change? See, these are tough questions, Michael. I think I start on the basis that the vast majority of businesses that I have ever known and that I got to see in their hundreds in my time in the CBI, and I see now through a lot of us, the vast majority of businesses are good businesses led by really good people. There are exceptions to that that set the reputation and the image very often. But the vast majority are led by very decent people, just like you and me, and they've got their children, they've got their families, and they care about the local communities. But you don't get, you don't have the right to be respected. You don't have the right to be valued. You have to earn it. So it's not about telling the story. It is about what you do. It's about your behavior. It is about your actions. And to my mind, that is the only way. And it's why in, in, in all of this, I, I think it was Warren Buffett who said it takes a lifetime to build a reputation and minutes to lose it. It's so true. And every and in, in my CBI time, I was asked to do some work on trust in business. And I said, you know, you know, what can you do? Trust in business only comes about if we behave the right way and people respect the decisions that we take. There's no campaign that will deliver trust. So so let's move from trust in business to trust in London, because one of the things we are debating as part of the future is the way that our relationship with work might change and business's relationship with its people. And of course, one of the one of the things you would say traditionally is London is a very hard working city. It's borne out by the data in terms of the hours that people work. And of course, there is a, a debate that's now going on which could have a massive effect on on the city, on many of the great hubs around London. I mean, you mentioned King's Cross, but there are obviously many others. How do you see it? I mean, do you, do you think that this is just what a city needs to do to evolve and reinvent itself for time? Or do you think that there is a a case to make about getting people back into offices, back into more traditional ways of working again, do you think? Michael, you're going to get me into trouble here. I mean, I I believe this is a time. We've had a terrible 12 months. We're going to have a very tough gig to get this city back on its feet. Your nation needs you. If we are going to recover this economy in the shortest possible time, I believe that the key metric is footfall. So I would like as many people as possible to come back as frequently as possible, spend as much money as possible, and enjoy themselves to the full extent. 
for as long as it takes to get our economy back. And as we see that peak, as we see that 2019 level of economic activity in front of us, that's the time to go into a reset of new ways of working with greater flexibility. I think that was a consummately handled answer, Paul. I don't think you had, but but I, so basically, and I think it's a fair point, right? Is that the vibrancy of a city relies on people using it and being a part of it. And I, I suppose the the question to sort of put into that though is that many of us are asking questions though about balance and about thinking again about the kind of contract between our places of work, our roles as parents, friends, whatever those things might be, and that a major moment in time like this does provide an opportunity to rethink. But I suppose you're also saying, though, that there is a need and an urgency to get on with it. I mean, is that, is that a fair reflection of what you're saying? I'm, I'm passionate about technology and change and adapting. But we, we currently today... In our London underground, it's operating at less than 20% of capacity. Our buses are at one third of their capacity. If you walk down Cannon Street, all those small businesses that you are championing are shut down. They all invested to create those businesses to support all those legal firms and financial firms in the city of London. And are we saying after this tough time, actually, we've all had the experience of our country homes and that happy living in the fields. And we quite like it. And all you small businesses who invested support us for the past 50 years, good luck, you're on your own. I think there's a better way. I think there's a kinder way, which is about balance. And I do think we need to remind ourselves that in all this lockdown, 10 million people have gone to work every day as though it was normal. So, you know, in all this wonderful stuff of leveling up and being nice and fair and balanced, Let's remember there's a lot of people who depend on the way the world used to be. And right, yes, we have to change. We don't have to do it instantly. Right. Okay. So that is a measured answer in terms of the changes that that may well happen. What about the change in in yourself, Paul? What do you think you've learned about yourself during COVID? I mean, it's a it's a you know this is a life changing moment that nothing by any of our generation have ever experienced. I mean, are there things you've learned about yourself in this in this moment in time that that you share? Well, look, I I'm not sure what I've learned, but I do consider. I mean, I'm I've never left this great capital city in the past. I've been here. I've been here for the journey. I've been lonely, but I have been here. And what I, 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 the first thing I do is I look and I say, compared to the vast majority of people, I have no reason whatsoever to complain. I'm very lucky. I've got space. I can have these conversations. I don't have children running around to my feet. I don't have kids sharing bedrooms. I don't have eight kids all sharing an iPhone to go to school. And so I'm the luckiest man on the planet. But I'd also say I'm possibly one of the loneliest because I love being with other people, meeting other people and doing the business. So what I've what I have learned, I think, are three things. Mankind is incredibly adaptable. The fact that so many of us have been in quarantine for much of the past twelve months and are still functioning says something about our adaptability. The second thing is the speed at which we can turn from being totally dependent on meeting people face to face to over a weekend, running our companies, running our businesses, running our schools, running our colleges, universities, remotely, virtually. I mean, that has just been seismic. 
But I would say, just talking to one of my good friends half an hour ago, uh, a, a very, very nice, successful business person, and he said to me, I'm just sick of it all now. You know, I'm just fed up. So I think the other thing is we had, we were very lucky. Lockdown one was was a, a, an Indian summer from March to October. It was, it was the best year ever in terms of weather. How lucky were we? We've, we've now had two or three months of, you know, three hours a day, like a day or whatever, you know. And I think that's been testing us a lot more. So, so I think, you know, I've, I've just learned about how incredible, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I, I know there's a lot of there is a lot of there's a lot of difficulty out there, but you have to commend the teachers who've been teaching in half empty classrooms and half the kids remote just getting on. I, I talked to some recently, and they're just they're just getting on with life. So I think what what I've probably learned not learned, but I've been reminded how lucky many of us are uh, and how good mankind is at adapting. Mm. I also think perhaps it brings us to a kind of final observation, which is your quote for life from American football coach and legend Vince Lombardi. Just just tell us a little bit about uh, about that quote and what it means to you. I think that the quote is, it's not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get back up. So, you know, it's not that you, you suffer a major setback, but it's that you recover from it. And I guess in my life, I've had, you know, I've had terrible setbacks. And I've and I've recovered, and each time I, re- I recovered because of other people. So it is, you know, we, it can be very lonely. And you know, my I, you know, I've had married to Wendy for forty years. She has been fantastic, and the setbacks very often she would help me with. Or my children, you know, the sources of recovery come from many places. They have to come from within, but they can be fueled uh, from without. And I think that's, you know, what I feel is the speed at which we recover can be helped a lot by having planning and support. I think the speed at which London recovers will be helped by a great plan and lots of support. I mean, it's interesting. And, and you know, when listening to what you what you say, Paul, it sort of reminds me of like how important London is to the feel good factor. You know, think about London 2012 and the Olympics and you know the the kind of the effect that that has on on the mood not just of the city but indeed the planet i think that a lot of what you have spoken about in this interview has evoked the feel good factor and i'm sure that a lot of listeners will say we very much hope it returns and many thanks to paul for bringing it to life so paul dresser thank you very much for joining me on change makers an absolute pleasure to have you on the show thank you michael really enjoyed the conversation thank you very much do join us again for the next episode of change makers <laughs>